Hi everyone, welcome back to season two, our second episode into season two on modern Israeli history. Today we're going to be talking about a name you have no doubt heard before, Theodor Herzl, considered the founder of modern Zionism. Now, you might think that in order to have had the monumental impact on Jewish history that he did, he would have had to have been something of a super Jew highly educated in Jewish history and tradition, deeply religious and spiritual, knows the Torah word for word, speaks fluent Hebrew. But you would be wrong, because that is not, in fact, who Herzl was. He was actually completely secular, mostly Jewishly illiterate, and fairly uninterested in Jewish religion, in God, in history, in the Torah, in traditions. He once claimed that the one time he went to synagogue as an adult, he didn't even know the words to the basic Shabbat blessings. And yet look at what he accomplished. Although the creation of Israel was due to the work of so many giants, Herzl has become the star around which the Zionist movement has orbited. He's earned it, through all his faults and inspiration and all the things that he got wrong and the few absolutely crucial ideas that he got right. Herzl once said that all the deeds of men are dreams at first. And by the middle of the 1890s, he had a really big dream. So last time, we talked about the rise of Zionism in Eastern Europe and Russia as a response to the centuries of violent persecution and anti-Semitism against the Jews. Jewish cultural leaders like Leon Pinsker concluded that the Jews had no future in Eastern Europe, literally, since they were being murdered, and that the only hope for the Jewish people was to establish an independent homeland in the land of Israel. To that end sprang up Zionist organizations like the Chovavet Zion, the Lovers of Zion, dedicated to supporting small-scale Jewish emigration to Palestine and fostering local cultural activities around Jewish self-determination. Well, today, we're going to move the action to Western Europe, where Jewish thinkers and writers like Herzl would come to the same conclusions as their counterparts in the East, although under very different circumstances. The differences between the two regions, physical safety and security on one side, and cultural and social assimilation on the other, still plays out in the Jewish world today, especially when you look at some of the differences and the discussions that happen in between Israel and America. So, it's a story that we all ought to know, with some great characters. Napoleon, Moses Hess, Emile Zola, Theodor Herzl, and an obscure French military officer in the 1890s named Alfred Dreyfus. I would say to young people that they can do everyone our share to redeem the world. In the fall of 1894, in Paris, French counterintelligence agents discovered that military secrets related to artillery guns had been leaked to the German embassy. As far as espionage investigations go, this one wasn't difficult. But instead of pursuing the real culprit, a French officer decided to lay the blame on Captain Alfred Dreyfus. The subsequent trial, or affair as it became known, would forever change France and French society. But it also opened a window for the Jews of Western Europe to consider their situation. And for one man, Theodor Herzl, it helped inspire him to take up the cause of Zionism. But first, okay. Let me take a step back and explain some things about what was going on in the 1800s. So, in the early 1800s, a French leader emerged who completely changed Jewish society in Western Europe. 
He wasn't Jewish, but you've heard of him. His name was Napoleon. Like, yes, like the actual Napoleon. Now, Napoleon was determined to spread enlightened ideas about equal rights, freedom of religion, and the rule of law throughout not just France, but all the places that he conquered in Europe. When it came to the Jews, Napoleon believed that, as individuals, Jewish citizens of France had the same rights and privileges and responsibilities as any other citizen. No discrimination against minorities was allowed. Jews were not forced to live in the ghettos like they were in Eastern Europe. The hope was that over time, the Jews would assimilate into French society, or Germany, or Italy, or wherever, and therefore become French, not Jewish. Now, the Jews responded to this emancipation, as it was called, in two ways. They either became more Jewish, so doubling down on their separation from mainstream society to live ever more traditional lives, or, as the majority did, they assimilated, adopting a French identity. But although Jews accepted that they were a part of French culture as much as any other Frenchman or woman, they didn't accept French religion. They didn't accept Christianity. You can see that, like, we're going to have a problem here. And so as the 1800s progressed, the Jews of Western Europe were feeling good about their position. In assimilating, in embracing the modern culture of France or Germany or Italy or wherever they were, and in behaving like their French, German, and Italian Christian neighbors, the Jews thought that they had finally conquered Jewish hatred. In adopting a patriotic loyalty to their host nation, the Jews thought that they had finally been accepted by mainstream European society and could prosper free of the kinds of terrible burdens that their fellow Jews were suffering under the Tsars. But these neighbors weren't quite as enamored of the Jews as the Jews thought. And so while Western Europe in the 1800s was an era of increased Jewish participation, achievement, and assimilation, it also saw the flourishing of new theories about the perils of Judaism. In 1881, a German publicist named William Marr coined a new term, anti-Semitism. Marr argued that Jews could never be fully German. They could never fully assimilate. More than that, Germans and Jews were locked in a racial struggle to the death over who would control society, and Marr worried that the Jews would win. Marr, by the way, had four wives, three of whom were Jewish or half-Jewish, which Seems like a great place for a joke about ex-wives, but this was 50 years before the Nazis, and you can hear where they got some of their ideas. Now, by the end of his life, Marr actually completely renounced his anti-Semitism, asked for forgiveness, and said that actually the reason for society falling apart wasn't the Jews, but rather the Industrial Revolution. So, thanks for that. Of course, although William Marr coined the term anti-Semitism, these ideas have been kicking around Western Europe throughout the century. Where Jews thought that their embrace of modernity would end Jewish hatred, it was actually the opposite. Now people hated the Jews because they had embraced modernity. Jews were blamed for economic problems, financial problems, social upheaval, and for invading and corrupting local culture with their suddenly all speaking French and German and dressing and acting like ordinary French and Germans. About 20 years before William Marr coined this term anti-Semitism in 1862, a French Jewish writer named Moses Hess wrote a really influential book. It was called Rome and Jerusalem. He argued that Europe would never fully welcome the Jews, that we would always be hated outsiders, 
And therefore, we must return to Eretz Yisrael to create a socialist agricultural society there. I mentioned earlier that Jews responded to the Napoleonic emancipation in two ways. Either they became more traditional, or they attempted to assimilate altogether. Now Moses Hess's book played up a third way. The idea that Jewish identity could be expressed in nationalism, not religion. So now, when I, a Frenchman or a German or whoever, am talking about being Jewish, I'm not talking about being Jewish in terms of rejecting Christianity. I'm talking about being Jewish in terms of what we will later call Zionism. That I ascribe to this idea that the Jewish people ought to return to their ancient homeland in Eretz Yisrael so that they can self-determine their own future and safeguard their own culture in their own nation. This idea of Jewish self-determination or nationalism, when it was combined with the spiritual notion of returning to our homeland in Eretz Yisrael, that's what makes the root of Zionism in Western Europe. And the reason why Herzl was such a genius is that he's going to take this concept and say, we're going to go even further than that. We're not just returning to Eretz Yisrael, returning to Palestine. We're actually going to create a real Jewish state there with borders and international recognition and everything that a country like any other country has. How Herzl got there had its inspiration in the Dreyfus Affair. So let me recap because the timeline can get confusing. We're talking about the 1800s here. In the early 1800s, during the Napoleonic era, we had the Jewish emancipation, which also began to produce a backlash from the Christian majority. By 1862, the backlash was bad enough that Moses Hess wrote his book arguing that the Jews will never be accepted and should move to Eretz Yisrael. In 1881, we get William Marr coining the term anti-Semitism to refer to the theories around Jewish race and struggle in Germany. Nevertheless, in much of Western Europe, Jews felt increasingly more secure and more accepted, especially thanks to the Napoleonic era in France. Which brings us to 1894 and the beginning of the Dreyfus Affair. The Dreyfus Affair began as an espionage investigation, and as I mentioned earlier, the whole thing could have been pretty straightforward and simple. The actual culprit left a lot of obvious clues leading directly to him. And at the same time, this wasn't some grand anti-Semitic conspiracy on the part of the French military either. The French army in this era was largely meritorious. There were several hundred Jewish officers throughout the ranks, although Captain Alfred Dreyfus was the only Jew at the general staff headquarters where some of his senior officers were kind of anti-Semitic. And so when the investigation began, they fingered Dreyfus, setting him up with forged evidence and a litany of accusations. A few months later, at the beginning of 1895, Dreyfus was convicted at trial. In a humiliating public spectacle, a French general stripped Dreyfus of his rank and uniform and marched him before an angry crowd. And while Dreyfus yelled out that he was innocent, the crowd screamed something back. Death to Dreyfus. And then, death to the Jews. Death to the Jews. What, in the eyes of the French public, did his being Jewish have to do with anything? This was supposed to be just an open-shut case of military espionage. It's not certain that the crowd did, in fact, yell death to the Jews, but that's how it was reported later by a Hungarian journalist who watched the trial in Paris. That journalist was Theodor Herzl, and he began to write. 
Prior to the Dreyfus trial, Herzl was one of those secular assimilationist Jews who strongly believed in integrating into the surrounding European society. But Dreyfus made final for Herzl what he had already been starting to think about, that the Jews had no place in Europe. It was futile, he felt, to try to fight anti-Semitism. What the Jews needed was an independent state. By 1896, he had written and published a short book called Der Judenstaat, or The Jewish State. It's considered the groundbreaking book of the Zionist movement. What made the Jewish state different than the other early works on Zionism is that Herzl called for the Jewish question of Europe to be resolved politically. He didn't see the problems of the Jews in Europe as specifically religious or social. He saw the problem as one of national identity, and therefore could only be solved through making the Jewish question an international political problem for the civilized nations of the world to deal with. So Herzl went beyond saying, hey, let's all go back to our ancient homeland in Palestine. He advocated for the international legal and political recognition of a sovereign Jewish nation that would have for itself the authority to decide on a system of immigration to bring in millions of Jews from Europe. It wasn't enough, he said, for a few Jews here and there to establish small agricultural settlements in Palestine, which is what had been happening. They had to have a state. This, this was his big dream, this state for the Jews. And he wasn't necessarily particular about where the state was just that it'd be big enough to hold all the Jews. For a while, he thought that Argentina would do nicely. But at the end of the Jewish state, he insisted that Palestine is our unforgettable historic homeland, and that the Jews who will it shall achieve it. His book had a huge influence, and he began to travel around Europe making the case for his brand of Zionism. While Herzl's Zionist ideas were making their rounds with Jewish communities all over Europe, new wrinkles in the Dreyfus affair were cracking open the intolerance and anti-Semitism of French society. After his conviction, Dreyfus was sent to the infamous Devil's Island prison off the coast of French Guiana in South America. Now, the Jewish community of France actually accepted the guilty verdict. Many people thought him guilty, thanks to that fabricated evidence. But within a couple of years, some writers began to condemn the verdict as an attack on the Jews, and evidence came to light that the proof against Dreyfus had been false, and still other secret evidence actually showed his innocence. These advocates became known as the Dreyfusards, and included some of the most prominent French thinkers, writers, and political leaders, including Marcel Proust, Emile Zola, Anatole France, and future French prime ministers and presidents. Of course, there were also the anti-Dreyfusards, and for 10 years, France was engulfed in this sensational affair over Dreyfus's guilt or innocence, which was really a proxy fight over the nature of French society and who, exactly, got to be considered fully French, and how the Jews did or didn't fit into this French majority. Most prominent among the Dreyfusards, those who supported Dreyfus, was Emile Zola. In 1898, so two years after Herzl wrote The Jewish State, in 1898, Zola published an open letter to the French prime minister accusing the state and the army of a cover-up, protesting Dreyfus's innocence and warning that the appeal to this odious anti-Semitism will destroy freedom-loving France. The editorial was titled, J'accuse, I accuse, with an exclamation point, and thrust Zola into the role of an advocate for tolerance, acceptance, and openness. He forced the issue of anti-Semitism out into open debate in France, and he risked his literary career to advocate on behalf of the Jews, who numbered only around 100,000 out of a population of 40 million. He ended up having to spend a year in exile in Britain in order to avoid jail time in France for libeling the army with his counter-accusations. 
In the end, Dreyfus received a vindication of sorts, but it was a very long time coming. The efforts of the Dreyfusards led to a retrial in 1899, in which Dreyfus was again found guilty. But to appease public opinion, he was pardoned and released from prison. In 1906, two years after Theodore Herzl died, Dreyfus was officially exonerated and placed back in the army as a major. In 1908, at Emily Zola's funeral, Dreyfus was wounded in an assassination attempt. But he went on to serve the French army during World War I as lieutenant colonel and commanded units at the Battle of Verdun. He died in 1935 and was buried in Paris. With the Nazis in power in Germany by then and the rampant anti-Semitism of the 1800s having spread across Europe, the warnings of the early Zionist thinkers were about to become true. In vain do we exert ourselves to increase the glory of our fatherlands by achievements in art and in science and in their wealth, Herzl wrote in the Jewish state in 1896. We are denounced as strangers. If only they would leave us in peace. But I do not think they will. So for the Jews of Western Europe, particularly France, the Dreyfus Affair of the 1890s was the most prominent example yet of the backlash of Christian society to Jewish assimilation. It fed the notion that the Jews would never be fully accepted in Europe. For Theodore Herzl, it was the last straw on his journey towards the full embrace of the Zionist movement, which within a year he would come to lead. And so this secular Jewish journalist, who not only advocated assimilation but swore off any real interest in Jewish religion, tradition, culture, or, or history, he now became the chief advocate for a dream in which the Jews would determine their own fate with their own culture, in their own country, in their own homeland. Okay, so are you still confused about what exactly is Zionism? It's okay. Because I have an answer. The answer is that Zionism is a tree. And I'll explain what I mean by that next time. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.